there's been so much good material written about this passage we're about to talk about that I just want to tell you up front. Um, again, a guy named Kenneth Bailey, I've, I've read a lot of his stuff. Tim Keller, and then um, a Catholic uh, priest guy named Henry Nowen, um, who spent a long time working with um, the invalid and the uh, people who were really struggling. And he has some beautiful things to say about this passage. He actually, it's very interesting, he went and sat in front of Rembrandt's painting, the Return of the Prodigal Son painting, and he went and sat there for like two or four days, just sat there. Um, I can't do that for two or four minutes. Um, but he sat there and just took it all in and then wrote this um, about a 60 or 70 page book about that experience. It's really beautiful. Um, so that's what it is. Let me, let me pray for us and we're going to read this passage together and then we'll talk about it for a bit. Lord, we pray that you would come and be with us and that you would send your spirit um, to open our ears and our minds and our hearts so that we might see you. And we pray that as we read this passage and, and talk about it, that the beauty of your son may be on display and that your gracious uh, willingness to stoop low to redeem us would be personal to us. We would sense, even feel your love for us. Got to pray for all these who have come tonight. Um, I pray that you would meet them in a very personal way. That um, you alone know all that is inside of our hearts. And I pray that you would work through the successes and the failures to ready our hearts to one day meet you. And I pray that you'd use even tonight to prepare us for that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, read this passage, Luke chapter 15. Um, I don't know if in the Bible is provided if you want to do that or you can just follow it up on the screen. I'm going to read the first three verses to kind of remind us of the context, and then we'll keep going in verse 11. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he, so he told them this parable. He told them the, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And this is the third one right in a row. And he said, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the, young, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. 
He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Sends the reading of God's Word. Um, no, actually, that doesn't end that. Uh, we're going to keep going. Um, JK. Uh, now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, this young, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the end of God's word. Um, in the last uh, probably ten years or so of my life, um, the way that I had that I viewed the message of Christianity and the very gospel itself, which is the message of Christianity, has dramatically shifted because of this passage. Um, it was largely through uh, Tim Keller and his kind of uh, exploring of this passage and what it means to to avoid God. And he says that there's two ways that people can avoid God. In one. It's what we see in this younger son here. One is that people avoid God. They avoid the father passage in this figure by going and just living for themselves, by, by taking all that God has given them just in this earth with resources and air and our, and our creation and all this and taking and just living utterly for ourselves. And in so doing, we, we avoid God by rebelling against him. And in that, we seek to become our own gods, whether or not you ever have realized that. But there's also another way to avoid God that Keller and these other guys talk about. And it is by, by doing all the right things. By following all the rules. By, by being very religious and very good. And the way that you, if that's you, the way that you avoid God is that you do all the things necessary to be good. And thus you have no need of God. And so if you've been into RUF before, you've probably heard me say this. On one hand, you can avoid God by... By running from him, rebelling against him. And on the other hand, you can avoid God by, by having no need of him and what he offers in the gospel. And that both people become a God unto themselves. And this passage is so beautiful because we see both of those things happening at the same moment. You see, what's happened in this very particular passage is that most people look at this story and they take it to mean just kind of this overarching principle of God's unconditional love for all sorts of people. And while that is in there, that's not the thrust of this passage. Um, Keller says that Jesus' purpose in giving us this parable is not to warm our hearts. He doesn't want us just to kind of walk away with this warm, fuzzy feeling about God. It's not to warm our hearts, but it's to shatter our categories. It's to completely explode everything we've thought to be true about the nature of God. And I can assure you that for his listeners in that culture, that is exactly what happened. 
So in telling this parable, Jesus wants us to see that the message of the gospel is so much bigger, is so more far-reaching, and is so much more scandalous than we ever than we ever thought possible. Because at the heart of it is a God who, quite frankly, doesn't care what people think about Him. He doesn't care what people think about Him. In order for us to fully explore this message, we're going to take two weeks. And the way we're going to look at it is this week we're going to take a look at the younger son and his relationship to the father. Then next week we're going to take a look at the older son and his relationship to the father in this passage. So uh, this week we're going to... We're going to look at the younger son, and we're going to do that through looking at four different things. The first is the younger son's request. What does he ask of the father in verse 12? And then we're going to look at the younger son's ruin. What happens after the father gives him everything that he asked for? Thirdly, we're going to look at the younger son's realization, and fourthly, at the younger son's reception back home by the father. Okay, so let's look at this first one, the younger son's request. We see in verse 12, he says, he looks at his father and says, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And it simply says, and he divided, the father divided his property between them, him and his brother. What he's doing, what this younger son is doing in this request is he's asking his father for his share of a future inheritance. He's looking at his dad and saying, Dad, I know that you're still alive, but I want... I want what's coming to me. Will you portion it out now? And in that process, that was a long, or in that time, that was a long and complicated process because most likely this word property, it it means land. That this man was a landowner and he had a vast estate. And so land sales don't go quickly. It's a long, drawn-out process with boundaries and, and deeds and all of this stuff. And he's asking his dad, will you do that for me? Will you go ahead and carve out my portion? And in that culture, when you lose your land, because it was an agrarian-based society, when you lose your land, you, you lose a portion of, of your very being, of yourself. Um, the play Oklahoma, Rodgers and Hammerstein, catches that. It's our state song, right, if you're from Oklahoma. It says, the land we belong to is grand. Or we know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand. But there's this sense that the land had that kind of importance, and we belong to it. And so just to go out and for this son to request that his father just cut him out his portion was what well, was an outrageous request. And to ask him to begin that process was a grave offense, both within the family and in that culture. But more than that, for him to request his father to go through with it, Not just to go ahead and write out the will, but to actually liquidate it and to give him his share was was scandalous. Uh, So what's the implication of this? Um, Ken Bailey, who I mentioned a lot, has done so much research on that culture. And he says this, For over 15 years I've been asking people from all walks of life, from Morocco to India to Turkey to the Sudan, about the son's request of the inheritance while his father is still living. He says the answer that has always come back has been emphatically the same. He kind of gives a mock conversation and he says it goes like this. He asks, Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? And the person would answer, never. He he asks again, could anyone ever make such a request? And the response is, impossible. 
If anyone ever did, Bailey would ask, what would happen? I like this one. They respond and say, his father would beat him, of course. Why? Bailey asks. And they say, because this request means he wants his father to die. When the son goes to the father and says, I want my share of the property, he is looking at his dad and saying, Dad, I want you to die. I want to be completely removed from this family. I want nothing to do with you. I wish you were dead. He wants complete and utter freedom and independence from his father. The father's response in the face of such humiliation, both personally and familially and publicly, or all three, I guess, is an unthinkable act when he patiently endures the pain of the question, just even entertaining the question. He maintains his affection for his son and he gives him what he asked for. A great personal agony. He gives him what he asked for. And so the son's request has been made known. The father grants his request. In the second part here, I want us to see what happens to the son as we look at the son's ruin in verse 13 through 16. We read about the son's living and his taking everything. In verse 13, it says that he gathers all that he had, which means he's not coming back. He has no intention of returning home, which was clear in the question, but now is made explicitly clear. This son wants to leave. He wants to go. All we know from this passage in terms of what he does in that far and distant country is it says that he squanders his property in reckless living. Now, there's a lot of people and and commentators and people who are a lot smarter than I am want to say that the son, that he goes out and does all these like kind of sexual exploits and lives in sensuality and all this stuff. That may be there and that may be true, but it's not necessarily what that word means, the word reckless there. It really means this sense of, of extravagance and expensiveness, that he lived in indolence and in luxuriousness, and that he was completely wasteful with this property that his father had portioned out for him. The picture is that he went and lived utterly for himself. He became a god unto himself, and he didn't answer to anybody. He declared his independence, and then he went and lived out his independence. So what happens? What happens to this son when he's out there doing this? Well, it says in the passage there's a famine. There's a famine in the land. There's also a famine in this younger son's wallet. He, he has nothing. He looks up at the height of this famine, the famine when the economy is crashing. And again, in an agrarian-based society, if there's a famine, the gears of production are slowing to a halt. He has nothing. When Sarah and I lived in, in Charlotte, and that's where I was in seminary out there studying, um, it was, we were there from like 06 to 2010. And with the great kind of economic recession from 2008 to 2010, it hit Charlotte particularly hard because whether or not you know this, I didn't before we moved out there, Charlotte, North Carolina is the second biggest financial hub in the United States outside of New York City. Um, Bank of America is headquartered there. Wachovia, which is now Wells Fargo, is headquartered there. Um, some other big banks and banking industry it is all there. If you remember, the financial stuff was at, the, was at the, the crux of this crisis. It was right in the middle of it. And so whereas for decades there had been all of this building and construction, and Charlotte was kind of a boom town, when 2008 hit, when October of 2008 hit, everything came grinding to a halt. 
And all of these people who had moved there, these uh, immigrant workers and different people who had moved there, their livelihoods vanished because their work vanished and there was nothing left for them to do. And think about this. If you are in a place when a famine or when a recession or depression hits, who is going to be the first person to feel the effects of that? It's going to be the migrant people. It's going to be people who don't have any roots there, who don't have family to take care of them, who don't have a, a wide support network of people they can go ask for jobs and stuff. So that's exactly what happened in Charlotte. It's exactly what happens in this passage. This guy, he is, he is the visitor to this distant country. And we see that he finds himself at the very end of his rope. And it says in there that the son, when it says that he went and joined himself to a hired man, it literally, that word means that he glued or he welded himself to a man. He found somebody and latched onto them with a sense of, of not letting go and said, I will do anything for you. And that's exactly what, what this man let him do. He sent him out into the fields to feed the pigs. And it says that he longed to eat of these pods, which that word, it means it's like, it's like little berries that are on a, on, a, on a thorn bush. You know, sometimes you walk by trees in the, in the winter, in the, in the fall, and they have those red berries on them. And they're so pretty, but you would never think to eat them unless you're like my daughter and you do eat them. Um, like that's what a pod is. That, they, that he was looking at these little berries which have zero nutritional value and he's wanting to eat them and it says he's not even able to do that. It says that no one was giving him anything. And it's an ongoing word. No one, in an ongoing sense, was giving him anything. No one was helping him. And it's in the midst of that famine, which has engulfed this son's life, that he begins to think and dream fondly of his home. And he begins to see and to think about what it might be like to be there. So we see what the son realizes and what he begins to think as he mulls over this in verse 17 to 20. He says, or this realization, which we can maybe even think of it like a mini sort of repentance. If we, do, if we take repentance to mean just a turning around. It, you know, it, he doesn't fully, he's not fully acknowledging on the front end all that he's done. It's simply that he is hungry, that he has nothing. And he makes this ever so subtle shift back toward home. And he begins to think about his father. What if he could go work for his father? Some of us need to hear this because, you know, sometimes in Christian circles we think about the idea of repentance or what it looks like to, to turn ourselves toward God. Maybe we've walked away from God for some time and kind of done our own thing. And we think about, that we think that if we're going to turn to God, we kind of have to have everything in order. And I have to have my, like my big prayer ready and this big confession list and all of this stuff that I can tell God and say, I'm sorry that I've done this and this and this and this and da 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 da, da this whole thing. But this younger son kind of gives us hope. And it was a very physical base need that he had as he looked up and realized that I am at the end of my road. That this way of living has led me to a dry field. I wonder if I could go back home. And he begins this process of thinking through what that might be like. I wonder if any of you have thought you have to have this big together presentation ready for God before you turn back to Him or before you confess some big sin or whatever it is. 
And I want you to simply see this, this son looks and just goes the other way and says, I, I don't even know. I know that I'm hungry. But this hasn't worked for me so far. He starts to think about, well, what can I do for my father? I know. I will go and I will be one of his hired servants. So we have to understand what that word means because it's hugely important. There were three kinds of servants in that culture. There were the douloi or the, the bondsmen. And the bondsmen, they became part of the estate. They would live on the estate. They would almost be like a son. They would be treated very highly and they would be welcomed into family meals on occasion. And then just below them were the paides. They were, they were the slaves of a lower class and they worked for the bondsmen. But below that was this, um, these people called the mistoi. And they were the hired slaves. And that is the word that is used here. This son is thinking, maybe I can be that third tier. Maybe I can just be a hired servant. The hired servant was an outsider. He wasn't kind of brought into the family. He didn't belong to the estate. And he had no personal affairs with that master. He was simply a worker. And that's what this son is thinking. He's not dreaming about coming back into the estate, back into his father's care. What he is thinking is that maybe I can go work for my dad because those people have food. But you see, this, this worker, if you're a hired worker, you're an employee, and that, that was actually a decent job in that culture, right? You, you made your own living, and you kind of lived on your own, and you could be a free man. You could live independent in the village, so this guy, this younger son is thinking, maybe I can go back home and maybe my dad will hire me out and I still won't have to be his son. I can stay on the outside and I can live independently and I can kind of make my own living and I can uh, work as this hired servant. And he's thinking, maybe if I can earn enough wages or maybe find some other jobs and do this stuff, maybe I can begin to pay my father back. He gets that he has utterly defamed and disgraced and defaced his father. And here he is in the open country thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go pay my father back. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to come and save myself. He doesn't want a handout from his father. He doesn't want grace from his father. He wants and intends to go and order his father and to say, make me a hired servant. It's really, really hard, really hard to receive grace. Really hard. It's why a lot of us um, have a really hard time receiving a compliment. And I don't mean a compliment in the kind of compliment where, like, you have a dinner party and you do everything over the top so that people are obviously going to say, this is amazing. You're just like, yeah, no, it's really not. All the while, you're like, thanks, I really wanted that. I mean a compliment that kind of comes out of nowhere. When someone says something very undeserving to you, I mean, I guess in some sense you deserved it, but you haven't lobbied for it, you haven't done anything, and someone just comes and pays you a compliment, and you just kind of squirm, and we don't know what to do with that. It's like, oh, uh, thanks, and we want to apologize sometimes. Like, no, you don't understand. Like, I'm really not that way. Or my favorite is we start turning around like, well, I like your shoes, and we start apologizing, or, you know, complimenting the other person, and, and kind of doing this whole thing, and we just really are uneasy with the idea of receiving something that we haven't earned or worked for. And it's exactly what we see with this son, that he doesn't want to receive grace. He doesn't want to have a handout from his dad. I was talking with a student recently, and um, she was telling me about these conversations that she was having with her roommate. 
And they've been talking about their um, respective kind of faith traditions. And the girl that I was talking to is a Christian. And um, she talked about her roommate. And, uh, this girl who I was talking with was explaining the way that, that Christianity worked. And, you know, that, that you get in God's right standing and in his uh, kind of restored to his good graces, if you will. That's a, not the right word. But um, through grace. And it's by faith. And you don't earn it. You don't have to perform these things and jump through all these hoops. And this girl whose, whose tradition makes you jump through a lot of hoops and makes you do a lot of things and you kind of have this laundry list of things to do, looked at my friend and said, well, your, your faith sounds really easy. And the girl's kind of like, well, I mean, it's different. Well, it's easy. And she said, you see, with my faith, there's all these things that I'm supposed to do. And so I always know how I'm doing, and I can judge myself, and I know that if I'm doing the right things or not doing the right things or whatever, and so she could always have a grasp on how good she was doing. And, you know, and that's a little bit of, of the difficulty with the gospel of grace, because it takes us out of control. We don't get to call the shots. We don't get to, to do enough to kind of monitor how we're doing with God. It's like when I sit down with um, a lot of you and you tell me that, that you're planners, right? And you just love to plan. And my next question to you is, you really, you really know what that means is that, um, that you are going to have a hard time trusting God, isn't it? Because when, by planners, what we mean is that we really love to control things. And by nature, when we get to control, we're in control. We don't have to trust God to be in control. Grace is hard. It is out of our control. And as his younger son heads home, he has every intention of controlling his father by entering into the working ranks. He doesn't want to receive grace. And by entering those working ranks as a hired servant, he will serve and he will work and he will remain independent of his family and maintain control of his life. But as we look at this younger son's reception back into the family, into the community by his father, we see that his plan goes gloriously wrong. Verse 20 through 24. This passage and this little section of verses is maybe the, one of the most dramatic scenes in all of the scripture. And the text says the father's mindset was compassion. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? After all this son has done, he wants his dad dead. He has said as much and his dad has sent him off. This dad, as he sees his son in the distant country and he's coming home, the dad runs out to him and says he has compassion on him. That is crazy. That is scandalous. And that would have pissed the Pharisees and all of the people around him off. It would have been a total mind-blowing shock of who they ever thought God would be or could be. He had compassion on this son who wished he was dead. And this unfolding drama and what seems so wrong by this father having compassion points us to how right and pure and loving the very nature of this father is. Bailey again says this compassion specifically includes that as his father sees his son and as he moves toward him, the father understands the gauntlet that the son is about to have to run through as he comes back into society. And what Bailey says is that when the father moves out to him and he grabs him and does all the things he does, that he says, son, I am going to run the gauntlet for you. I'm going to do everything necessary to restore you to this family and restore you to this community. And so what all does he do? Well, he runs. 
And we have to understand in that culture, an oriental nobleman, someone of standing like this man was, he doesn't run anywhere. That he would wear these long robes and he would traipse about the streets and he would mill and he would wonder, but he would never run. Running is what the kids did. Running is what the slaves did or the servants did to serve their master. Aristotle, about 400 years before Jesus, says, A great man, great man never runs in public. And yet this father is running to his lost son. And when he gets to him, he embraces him. And he kisses him. Which is his way, it's that culture's way of saying that you are fully here. That you are fully welcome. You are reconciled to me. And the kiss was a sign of utter and full forgiveness. The father is welcoming him back home. So here's this scene. The father embracing the son, having just offered this forgiveness and reconciliation. And the son begins his speech, this rehearsed speech. That imagine the whole way home, he's thinking, this is what I'm going to say. I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I want to be one of your hired servants. And the father stops him. And he looks at his servants and says, Go. Go and get him the robe. Get the ring. Get him some shoes. It would have been a family robe that was reserved for celebrations and great ceremonies. Get him the ring, which was most likely the family ring, the signet ring. Get him shoes, which denoted that he was not to be seen as a servant. He was a son, and the Father was declaring him to be such. Go, bring him everything that will show everyone that this is my son, that he is home. You see, the son had experienced total rejection in that distant country. And in the place where we most expect him to receive total rejection, he, by the father's gracious kindness and undignifying act, brings him total acceptance. We expect him to be totally rejected and he is totally accepted by the father's undignifying movement toward his son. He says in verse 24, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The son's rebellious actions and attitudes, his desire to be his own God in this story, is swallowed whole by the father's willingness to, to take, leave all of his dignity at the door and run out after his son. When we were in Joplin this weekend, I'll close with this story. When we were in Joplin this weekend, uh, Reed Dunn, the pastor of the church we were working alongside, he came and talked to us. And he said that the mark of Christians throughout all time and space and history is that Christians don't avoid sin. They don't avoid mess. They don't avoid destruction and failure and ugliness and and all that this world um, gets and has because of the fall. And what that means is that Christians that we don't, uh, if for those of you who are Christians, we don't avoid kind of owning our sin. That's actually part of what it means to to believe the gospel is we own that half of who we are and we we are messed up. There's another half that says we are loved and we are in God's image. But he says that we own it about ourselves and we don't run from it. But also we look out in the world and that we don't avoid it. And that when you have friends who are tough for you relationally and who have hurt you or who you have hurt, that it's not enough to sweep things under the rug and just try to love someone. 
That forgiveness is necessary. There has to be an entering in and a, and a moving forward and an untangling the mess of sin. And as we were there in Joppa in the midst of, or after in the midst of all this great destruction, Reed looked at us and says, what you are doing is entering in to this healing process. And the mark of a Christian is that we enter into what God is doing in this world to heal things. And we don't avoid it. We don't run from it. His father enters into his son's rebellion. He enters into his son's mess. And he comes down to his son's level so that the son might be redeemed. And Christians do that. Because at the very heart of the Christian story is Jesus, who didn't stay in heaven, and who didn't stay far off, but was like the Father in this story, and who enters into our brokenness, and not just enters in, He takes it on Himself, most fully on the cross. And that He experiences total rejection in God's presence, which is what we would all think naturally happens when we come to God on our own, we would naturally think, I'm to be rejected here fully and finally and totally, and where Jesus is to be fully rejected, or where we are to be fully rejected, Jesus is rejected for us so that we might be fully accepted. So that's what we see with this son as he's brought in. Have you been brought in? Is that true of you? If it is true of you, how are you moving into to the brokenness of people? If it's not true of you, I wonder if you would, if you would embrace that to be your story. Let's pray.